On behalf of the Mission Commission, it's a real pleasure to welcome uh, Mary and Mark Hurst with us this morning. You saw Mary already uh, during children's time, and probably some of you are humming that song already. Um, Mark and Mary have been supported by this congregation for a number of years. Um, As Mary said, she grew up in this area. Mark said he grew up right in the neighborhood uh, and graduated from McCaskey High School here. Mark and Mary have been in service in Australia. Uh, They went for the first time in 1990, so for the better part of 22 years, they've been serving uh, in Australia, currently jointly appointed by Eastern Mennonite Missions and Mennonite Mission Network. Uh, They both did uh, previous service as well with uh, Mennonite Central Committee in Atlanta and New Brunswick. They are parents of three children, Mariah, who was here uh, a few weeks ago, Matt and Micah, and they'll say a bit more about themselves as they share as well. So welcome here. We're glad to have you. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, We're starting a three-month, well, we've a little bit toward the beginning of a three-month speaking tour that is going to take us from New Brunswick to Arizona. So um, we're, um, I was going to say we're enjoying the weather here, but um, we don't get this kind of high humidity, so this is a bit of a stretch for us. So we'll probably enjoy the weather in New Brunswick more. Uh, a couple of things before I get started. Uh, I bring greetings from the Denlingers, uh, Ruth and Gary. We were with them two weeks ago in Indiana at a Mennonite Mission Network uh, seminar, and they said to be sure to bring greetings to this congregation. And also, I want to thank you for your support over the years, uh, your prayer support, the emails we get from time to time. We're part of your, uh, your email list, so we, we hear all about what's going on in the congregation and keep up a little bit that way. And also, the financial support that we get from this congregation helps keep us going there in Australia. Now, one of the things that with this speaking tour, we have several assumptions that, that we're carrying with us on this tour. The first one is that even those churches where we've been before and even pastored, we're assuming that there are a lot of people that have never met us. Now, how many people here have never heard us speak, have never met us before? Okay. That that assumption is proving true as we go along. Uh, We've been to three churches that we've pastored before, and often it's about a third of the people that no longer know us. This is an issue for longer-term missionaries who have to raise their own support in the the present system uh, because fewer and fewer people know us back here. So we really appreciate the support that we have from congregations like East Chestnut Street. The other assumption that we have, when we first went to Australia in 1990, there weren't many people who had traveled in Australia or New Zealand. But our assumption is that there would be people in this congregation that have traveled in Australia or New Zealand or have had family members there. Now, how many people here is that true of? How many people have been in Australia? Okay, quite a few or have had family members there. Our third assumption is that we assume a number of people will know more about our children than us. Sometimes Mary and I feel like we've lost our identity. They'll say, oh, you're Micah or Mariah's parents or you're Matthew's parents. Our three children are all adults now. We have four grandchildren as well. Matthew Siderhurst is our oldest um, child. He is professor at Eastern Mennonite University, a chemistry professor. Uh, for the next two years, he'll be in Hawaii doing research with a USDA lab that he's also attached to. Micah Hurst is um, back at EMU. They had been, he and his family had been with us for about a year in Australia, 
but he's uh, one of the resident directors and living in Cedarwood dorm at, at EMU. And then Mariah was here a few weeks ago. She's also with Mission Network in Melbourne, uh, one of the other large cities in Australia. She was over for about a month, and she's back now in Melbourne and back at work. And because we're running into a lot of people that don't know us, we're going to do a little bit of a summary of our time in Australia, and then we'll pick up more on some of the details in the Sunday School Hour later on. So this will be a review for some of those of you who know us, and then uh, an introduction for some of those who don't know us. As Bruce said in the introduction, we first went to Australia in 1990 with Eastern Mennonite missions as church planters and peace missioners, a term that I think David Shank made up at the time. Um, we had a house church called Sydney Mennonite Fellowship from 1990 to 1994. And then we realized that we were going to lose our visa. And in an attempt to get permanent residency, we made a move to Tasmania, the island state down at the bottom of Australia. We moved there in mid-1994, and we worked for Glenhaven Family Care, starting a family mediation program, and continuing to work at building some kind of Anabaptist Mennonite presence in the country. While we were there, we had a gathering in Sheffield in 1995, and out of that, AAANZ was born. Now, we have Zs, we don't have Zs, and AAANZ is the Anabaptist Association of Australia and New Zealand. We work both in Australia and New Zealand. And that network was born, at the, and at the end of that meeting, we had gathered people from around Australia and New Zealand who were interested in Anabaptism. And David Shank was there as a speaker, and Chris Marshall came over from New Zealand. And at the end of that meeting, when they formed this network, they said, we want to have something that connects us. And they invited Mary and I to be the, the pastoral workers for that broader network. So since 95, that has been our main work in Australia and New Zealand. At the end of 95, we lost our visas and had to leave Australia. We continued relating to AAANZ and made return trips in 1997 and 1999 for two or three months at a time. And then in 2000, we got our permanent residency and we returned to Sydney to work for AAANZ. In 2002, I have to change that on here, we joined the Mennonite, uh, what was then MBM and COM, which then became Mennonite Mission Network. We joined them as associates and continued to work with EMM. Um, sometime around um, 2009, we switched our relationship and went full-time with the network and became associates with Eastern Mennonite Mission. So we, we still relate to both of those mission boards. In 2003, we got our Australian citizenship. So we no longer had to worry about losing visas and being kicked out of the country and that type of thing. So now we travel on two passports, and we can tell you some more stories about that. Um, after a sabbatical year in 2007, we moved to the northern beaches area of Sydney to help found an Anabaptist community called the 1643 community. Now, people often say, ooh, 1643, and they start thinking, what happened in Anabaptist history in 1643? Well, we don't have any idea, but that happens to be our address. It sounds very Anabaptist, but so far we haven't found any significant thing that happened in 1643. We're still looking. But we'll talk more in the second hour, too, about our community. In 2010, we began a pastoral relationship with the Avalon Baptist Peace Memorial Church. And we now split our time between the Anabaptist Association, Avalon Baptist, and the 1643 community. 
Um, the Avalon Baptist Peace Memorial Church is probably one of the most Anabaptist Baptist churches in Australia. And we can talk more about that in the second hour as well. Over the years, we have been teaching peacemaking in a number of settings around Australia and throughout Asia. We've taught the Alternatives to Violence Project in prison and community settings. We taught a graduate course on conflict in the church in a number of theological schools around Australia. And we've taught in peacemaking institutes in Australia and the Philippines, as well as um, taught peacemaking in Thailand, Malaysia, Cambodia, and Korea. In recent years, since we started pastoring this Baptist church, we've been more settled. We still travel three to four months. Well, it's less than that now. Uh, We still travel around the country. Our trips are shorter now. Our Baptist church expects us to be there three out of four Sundays a month. So in that other time, we're still doing trips around Australia and New Zealand, but for shorter periods of time. But I want to talk today about one of the joys that we have in pastoring on a weekly basis, and that's being paid to study and to teach the scriptures. I love delving into the scriptures and and hearing Psalm 37 read this morning, uh, a very rich psalm. I love being actually paid to do that and then to teach on a Sunday. And in our church, we follow the lectionary readings, and we try and build our times of worship around the lectionary readings. So each week we start off with a psalm, and we use that for our call to worship. And then we we use the New Testament and the Old Testament readings. And one of the things that we've we've discovered over the last couple years is a new love of the Old Testament and the foundation that that gives us for our New Testament way of living as well. Recently we had a, a speaker come to Australia, and he said this, In reading the Bible, we need to read the Old Testament through New Testament eyes, through the lens of Jesus, and the New Testament with Old Testament ears. We need to hear those stories from the past, and we need to dig into that foundation that we have in the Old Testament. I'm always excited about finding these threads in the Old Testament that fed many of the New Testament writers. People like Jesus and and Paul and Peter, they were... They were well grounded in the Old Testament. If you read only the New Testament, you could easily believe that qualities like peace and justice and compassion and concern for the poor and forgiveness are only New Testament themes. They're there in the Old Testament as well. And probably the best example of that concern for the poor and that concern for economic justice are the Jubilee texts that we find in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. Imagine trumpets blasting throughout the country and calling people to a time of returning the land to those who have lost it, a time of forgiving debts and making things right again. Scheduled every 50 years in ancient Israel, the year of Jubilee was without a doubt the most compelling expression of God's concern for the poor contained in the Mosaic Law. Jubilee was a comprehensive program of debt cancellation, liberation from indentured servitude, and the complete restoration of each family's ancestral property on the basis of God's original distribution of the promised land. Regardless of how deeply entrenched the poor had become or how much of their property the rich had accumulated, the year of Jubilee was intended to bring economic transformation and justice to the land. Now, unfortunately, scholars tell us that Israel probably never fully celebrated the year of Jubilee. They, they probably never fully incorporated that in their way of living. 
But it's there in their teaching, it's there in the Psalms, it's there in much of the Old Testament, and it's there in Jesus' plan for his announcing of the kingdom of God. Jubilee is there and it runs through and is a part of that. And we see that in this psalm that was read today. And I thank Lisa for reading the whole psalm. Often when I give uh, this as a, as a psalm reading for churches, they'll read the first nine or ten verses. But we need to hear the whole psalm. This is an amazing psalm that picks up a lot of these jubilee themes. Verse 28 talks about the Lord loves justice. God is a God of justice. This is a wisdom psalm spun by a sage who has grown old. Verse 25 says, I'm an old man looking back over life. It's also uh, an acrostic, an alphabetic acrostic, which means that each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet begins every other line of the text. The point is that the law of God covers life from A to Z, or A to Z, as we would say in Australia. Some of the prominent command words in the beginning of this psalm are trust, take delight, and commit. Listen again to these first five verses. Do not fret, which means do not become angry because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, one of the things in Australia, they say herb. And Mary always says, well, I have a friend back in Lancaster named Herb. I can't call these things herbs. They're herbs. And so that's one of the things we argue with Australians all the time. Uh, they'll fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. It's not a trust in the Lord, sit back and do nothing. It's trust in the Lord and do good. So you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Now, this land is, or this psalm is full of language about the land. Six or seven times it says about inheriting the land. It talks about dwelling in the land. Now, the land for us in Western society often is just a commodity that we buy and sell. But in the Old Testament, God says, you are not to sell the land like it's just a commodity. The land is mine. You are just there as stewards on the land. You are to take care of the land. And for many aboriginal cultures, land is their life. It's not something that they buy and sell. And in this psalm, it says land is tied up with your posterity. It is, it is tied up with your security. So land is very important. I was saying to Lisa, I've been looking online. Somebody has had to do a, either a master's or doctoral thesis on land in this, in this psalm. If not, somebody should, because it is, it is a rich psalm that talks about the importance of land to them. And I was thinking about this in, in our context. We're here in Lancaster County, we're, we're divorced from Aboriginal cultures. Most of the Native Americans have been driven out and they're gone. But I remember when I was a child, I had a friend who had a farm down around Turkey Hill, and we used to go to the back of the farm and we used to dig around for arrowheads, signs of life of the aboriginal people who used to live here. And in Australia today, land rights are a big issue. And in many of the Pacific Island countries where we work, land is an important issue. And it's often a, a, an area, it's, a, it's an issue of conflict. Who owns the land? The aboriginals talk about land owning them and being their mother. And so land is very important. It's, a, it's a, a justice issue. And this psalm is full of that kind of language. 
It talks in here about being on the land, and it, and it draws from Leviticus 25.18, so that you may live on the land securely. Again, picking up this jubilee theme. And then it has this verse that says, The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Where do we hear that again? Do we hear that again in the, in the scriptures? I forgot to tell you. Don't go asleep on me. I ask questions. Where do we read or hear about the meek inheriting the land? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus picks this up. Now, I was reading this week, some scholars like to kind of spiritualize this and say, oh, all this talk about the land, they're talking about heaven. And what happens when you spiritualize this, then you, you do away with all those justice issues about taking the land away from the original owners. And I don't think Scripture does that. We're not meant to just spiritualize this and say, oh, this is talking about heaven. No, there are justice issues today involving the land, and we need to take those seriously. There are other concerns to live justly that are talked about in this psalm. It says in verse 27, depart from evil and do good. And Psalm 34 has this, this phrase, but then also adds, seek peace and pursue it. First Peter picks that up later on in his letter. There's also this wait for the Lord and keep to his way. And one of the amazing things in verse 23 and 24, it says that when we keep God's way, God will delight in us. God delights in our way. Though we stumble, we shall not fall headlong, for the Lord holds us by the hand. What a wonderful image of God is this God that later on Jesus calls Abba. A God that when we walk in the way of God, this God holds our hands so we don't trip up. And God delights in us doing that. Now, in Jesus' day, I think there were also lectionary readings. There were assigned readings within the synagogue. And when he goes into his local synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4... Scholars disagree on whether there were lectionary readings and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah and, and handed him Isaiah 61, or whether he chose that text. But either way, the text that he read that, Sunday, that Sabbath day in his local synagogue was full of jubilee language. He chose that or he was given that text and the context here is very important. Jesus has just returned to his hometown in Nazareth after being tempted in the wilderness. Just as the good news was proclaimed throughout the land in the year of Jubilee, Luke tells us that the news about Jesus was spreading throughout the whole countryside. At long last, he was finally ready to begin his public ministry, to set the gospel of the kingdom in motion. And how would he do this? Reading from a scroll in the synagogue on one Sabbath day, this is how Jesus described the gospel and announced whom he was and what he had come to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. His mission was to preach good news to the poor. And yet, this mission didn't come out of the blue. The backdrop for the good news that Jesus preached to the poor was the socioeconomic legislation of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus didn't use the Old Testament in a wooden, very literalistic way. Even in reading this text, he, he slotted in some other verses and he dropped some phrases. He 
he omits 61 to be the day of the vengeance of our God. He drops out, uh, that out altogether. And he borrows a phrase from Isaiah 58, 6. And then he, he drops off another part of 68, 1. So the way Jesus used the Old Testament was in a selective way that matched the mission that he was sent to do. And so vengeance and wrath and some of these other things were not part of his mission. And he chose texts from the Old Testament to match what he was about. And I think in the way Jesus used the Old Testament, we have some clues for how we also use the Old Testament. And I can say more about that in the second hour if you want to pick that up. Recently, we were asked to do a workshop on Romans 12 and 13. And in doing that, we also saw some, some jubilee ideas that jumped out at us from this text. And we also saw how Paul used the Old Testament in what he taught. It, there's um, an amazing parallel to Psalm 37, particularly the verse, depart from evil and do good. We've had this read this morning, this, this part of uh, Romans 12, this long list similar to Psalm 37 about let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to that is good, Out, outdo each other in showing honor. And then this stuff at the very end about um, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when we read that often, where did that come from? What's all this stuff about heaping coals of fire on people's heads? Well, that's there in the Old Testament. It's there in Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. If your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink, for you will heap coals of fire on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. Now, scholars are all over the place on what does this mean? What is this all about, heaping coals of fire on people's heads? I like what Marva Dawn says about this passage. She says, heaping coals of fire on their heads, Paul must have, had, must have used a quotation that would have shown to his first readers how to respond to evil positively with deep kindness. Though the metaphor he chose has been lost to modern readers, we know that it must entail a surprise which motivates a change of attitude and behavior on the part of enemies. Now, there's a story that I think Paul probably had in mind. It's a story from 2 Kings 6 that I think all Mennonites should know. Whenever we start using the Old Testament, people say, oh, what about warfare in the Old Testament? And what about all that violence? Well, there's a wonderful story that illustrates what Paul is talking about in Romans 12. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to this, 2 Kings 6, 8 to 23, I think Paul had this story in mind. It's a wonderful story. It says, once when the king of Aram... Now, where in today's world would you find Aram? I'll give you a clue. It's in the news every day. Syria. Syria. Okay? Wow, imagine that. Warfare in the Middle East. It was there in the Old Testament. It's still with us today. These are contemporary issues for us. Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers. He said, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Take care not to pass this place, because the Arameans are going down there. The king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice he warned of such a place that it was on the alert. Now imagine this, if you were a king, and you were going to attack Israel, and you called your officers in and said, We're going to attack here, 
and then you would arrive there and no Israelis were around, what would you begin to think? What would you begin to think if every time that you want to attack the enemy, your plans were thwarted? Yeah, somebody is leaking. Uh, also a modern-day phenomenon in government circles. Somebody was leaking. So what's the king of Aram do? He said, the mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and said to them, Now tell me who among us sides with the king of Israel. There's a traitor in our midst. Somebody's being paid off. Then one of his officers said, No one, my lord. It is Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. Wonderful role for the prophet to even know what's going on in the bedchamber of the enemy king. So, he said, go and find where he is, and I will send and seize him. Today, we would send in a drone and take him out. But then they didn't have drones. They had to use the military. So he says, find out where he is. And they said, oh, um, I've lost my place. Uh, He is in Dotham. Dothan. And he sent horses and chariots there and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And his servant said, Alas, master, what shall we do? And he replied, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Now, I would have loved to have been Elisha's servant, or at least been there to see this scene. I could imagine this servant saying, Okay, Elisha's in one of those moods again today. You know, they're all surrounded by armies. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. We have more than they do. Servants say, okay. But look what happens. Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha was in touch with a different reality than his servant. When the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people please with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now, what was Samaria to Israel at that time? Capital. It was the capital city. So he led this enemy army right into the capital. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. Now, look what the king does next, typical of worldly leaders. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? You know, that's the way many of our worldly leaders deal with evil. We just, we find the evil ones and we kill them. Unfortunately, that's much of Western society. That is our way of dealing with evil. And God has a different way of dealing with evil. Elisha says, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Rather than killing them, he says, set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. Echoes of Proverbs, echoes of what Paul picks up later on in Romans. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. 
And look what happens. He prepared for them a great feast. And after they ate and drank, he sent them on their way and they went to their master. And I love the last line. And the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. God's way of dealing with enemies is to love them, to feed them, to give them drink. And it says they no longer raided into Israel. Much of what Paul calls for in his Romans 12 passage is illustrated here in this story. Hospitality, living peaceably with others, and feeding and loving your enemies. We should all read our Bibles with New Testament eyes and Old Testament ears. We will find that the God of the Bible is a God who loves enemies and calls us to do the same. This God wants us to trust, to do good, to take delight in God's way, and to commit our way to the Lord. When we do this, God delights in us. May it be so. We want to teach you a song. It's one that some of you may have sung if you were in Atlanta in 2003 for the Mennonite Church Gathering. It was the theme song that year. It's called A Place at the Table. We like this song for a number of reasons. One, the words are written by a Kiwi, uh, a woman from New Zealand. So this is the New Zealand part of our presentation. But it's also, it's a song that captures a lot of our theology. And we often use it when we teach workshops. And our local Baptist church, this has become our theme song. And one of the things we like about it in the chorus, it talks about when we work at justice, God delights in that. And there is joy connected to working for justice. Now, often people think, oh, working for justice, you know, that is, it's the hard slog. And, but God talks about delighting in God's way. God's way is a way of justice. And when we put those two together, we have joy. And this song captures that. This song goes through and talks about a place at the table for everyone. It talks about children and older people. It talks about men and women. And then it has the hard verse. It talks about a place for abusers and abused with need to forgive and for all of us to learn a new way to live. And then the last, the last verse says, this is to be our way of life, just to go out and to do good and to worship and to work, and God will delight in that. So Mary is going to come and lead us in this song, A Place at the Table. We'll switch places here. Have, have, do any of you remember this song from the gathering in Atlanta? I'll sing it, and whenever you recognize it, you're welcome to join in. For everyone born a place at the table, for everyone born clean water and bread, a shelter, a space, a safe place for growing, for everyone born a star overhead. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. For woman and man, a place at the table, revising the roles, deciding the share. With wisdom and grace, dividing the power for woman and man, a system that's fair. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. 
Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. For young and for old, a place at the table, a voice to be heard, a part in the song. The hands of a child in hands that are wrinkled, for young and for old, the right to belong. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. For just and unjust, a place at the table, abuser abused with need to forgive. In anger, in hurt, a mindset of mercy, for just and unjust, a new way to live. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. For everyone born a place at the table to live without fear and simply to be, to work, to speak out, to witness and worship, for everyone born the right to be free. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy.